to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, man. This is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hey there, you fans of the checkered flag, and thank you for dipping your toe in the waters of scoring at the movies. This is our 81st episode, and like in the previous 80, we will be analyzing a sports film and spoiling the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Just saw Jaws last night. I'm the retired (laughs) racer with a bum ticker who doesn't even notice when he's been set on fire, Ryan Ellis. And here's the socially awkward curmudgeon who's difficult, but good, and finer than frog fur, Christy Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. It's good timing that we're doing this today because the IRS just came by earlier and padlocked my recording studio. So I really need to make some money off of this podcast or I'm going to be in some big trouble. As you know, (laughs) I just got my second dose of uh, COVID vaccine, the Moderna one this time. I don't know where the energy level is going to be for this recording, but it's worth it because if Reddit has taught me anything, I'm either going to become immortal as a result of this vaccination or i'm going to just get perfect 5g reception for the rest of my life and either one of those two outcomes is great there's also a potential third option where i might just get perpetual office 365 subscriptions without having to pay for it so that's cool too we'll see where it goes you might just die there's also that option. (laughs) really because that's not what the conspiracy threads on reddit tell me well the funny thing is you say this but by the time we post this you will be in your two weeks-ish, right around two weeks, and you should be fine. And Bev and I get our shot the day after we record this, so we will soon be in the same boat. And we can record in person, we hope, the next episode. Yeah. The restrictions are lifting when we want to record without limits, which we're going to do before I go on vacation. Okay, let's set up this movie. Ford v. Ferrari, or Ford versus Ferrari. Le Mans 66, as it's known in most of the world, was released on November 15th, 2019 by 20th Century Fox. But it's not available on Disney Plus for some reason. It earned back more than twice its budget worldwide, which means it was a moderate success. It was also Fox's biggest hit that year and was one of the last movies released by the studio before Disney took over. It's also the last winner of the Best Sound Effects Oscar. I think they call it Sound Editing. I always call it Sound Effects because it used to be called that. I don't know why they killed that category, but this is the last year, 2019, that that award was won. It also won for its editing, which I guess is a pretty good choice, the film editing. And it was nominated for Best Picture and the sound mixing. So four Oscar nominations in total. I'll go through some of the plots a little later on, but I got to find out two things. A, what are you drinking? And B, what'd you think of this movie? I'm drinking black coffee today. Lack of sleep. Because of the shot. Because of the shot. So moving away from my usual alcoholic indulgence while we record. And what did I think of the movie? It's also 2.30. It is 2.30 in the afternoon. So it's a little, although it's a Saturday, so no judgment there. But yeah, it's not in the cards for me today. As far as what I thought about the movie, this is an interesting one for me because... I did something I don't ever usually do when we watch movies for a podcast, and that is I sent you some of my thoughts. I started watching this. I had to stop watching about an hour into it and then pick it up at a later date to finish watching it. And after I watched that first hour, I sent you an email to say, like, I don't get this movie. It felt slow, plodding, and I think missed for me some of the marks it was trying to hit. For all of that, I don't think it's a bad movie. I actually really enjoyed some sequences in this, whereas other sequences totally missed for me. 
I knew nothing about the plaudits of this movie. I knew nothing about its relative success or not. So when you say it won an Oscar for sound, that makes a lot of sense to me because this is one of the rare movies where I watched at home and it made me wish that I had a more expansive home theater with potent surround sound and stuff because you can see during the racing sequences, not see, you can hear during the racing sequences in particular, that if you're watching it in that environment or even in the movie theater, you're really going to get the full sense of what the director is trying to get across to you, right? You can just hear the sound design come through and it made me wish I had better sound at home because I really enjoyed those sequences and I feel like it would have taken it up another notch for me. Yeah, it's a great sound movie, obviously, winning the awards was an appropriate choice for that, but it could have just as easily been Avengers Endgame or something like that for 2019, but I won't argue with that winner. The irony of you saying it's slow and plodding, I'm not quite on the same page with you about that, but I'm close enough to being that it's funny it wins an award that's usually all about pace. Yeah. A lot of people think of editing like in JFK, which is a phenomenally edited movie from the standpoint of hundreds of different shots sometimes in a small sequence when they show... Costner and the other guy analyzing Dealey Plaza and they show all kinds of edits but that's not really what editing is and Bev could probably explain this better than me because she does it for a living but if the movie felt slow to you even if it's two and a half hours long that actually speaks against what it was rewarded for which is interesting to say I guess too you talk about the plaudits though we're both middle-aged. This movie should be in our wheelhouse. We're not really racing fans. Maybe that's why. We might not be racing fans, but I think it's safe to say that we both drive high-performance automobiles, Ryan. And we often redline at 7,000 RPMs just in our daily commutes. So this might be in our wheelhouse. I had to floor it yesterday just to get the car to get past somebody so I wouldn't wipe out a parked car. The Kia does not have much in the way of guts. But okay, here's what people thought of it. The critics on Rotten Tomatoes, this may be the best two scores I'll ever tell you, or certainly among them. The critics say 92%, so that's a good number there. 7.8 out of 10, so obviously they didn't rave that much, but still pretty strong numbers out of 349 reviews. But how about this? 98% of audiences, almost everybody who watched this movie who doesn't get paid to talk about movies, liked it that much or even loved it. It's also 202nd on the Internet Movie Database's 250. I haven't talked about that very often in podcasts I've done with you. And it was 22nd at the box office that year. Fighting with my family was 91st. And the Peanut Butter Falcon, which is on Crave, we could watch that one of these days, was 100th. Okay, so back to the liking and not liking thing. I've seen this movie twice, both at home. It would have been better to see it in the big screen, but we didn't. So what can you do now? Why is it that we didn't latch onto this movie with my two viewings and your staggered version, which is probably not the best way to watch the movie, but hey, life got in the way. Yeah. As is recording this, we were recording this days later than we intended to because of all kinds of things. Why don't we like this movie more? Do you know? This is one of those movies where as I was watching it, I was asking myself that question because there's so much about it that should be right in my wheelhouse. You're right in saying neither one of us are big racing fans and certainly not big fans of the Le Mans 24-hour race or anything like that. But we're both big fans of Christian Bale and Matt Damon, generally speaking. They're both very accomplished. You bet your ass. Yeah. <laughs> we're ready to believe in good car racing <laughs> exactly and both of those guys are really good in this movie i thought as were pretty much all of the supporting cast like i thought the performances across the board were solid to really good and in particular i really enjoyed the actor that played enzo ferrari half my family's italian and i have a lot of experience dealing with cantankerous old italian guys watching him cuss out henry ford ii through lee iacocca and then later on yelling at everybody it really just brought home some real nostalgic feels for me watching that performance. That guy's name is Remo Girone. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but Garoni maybe. He's been in a lot of movies, but I don't recognize him from anything else. But yeah, that's Enzo Ferrari. 
maybe he's just largely an overseas actor. He does a lot of European productions, maybe. Mm. There's a lot to dig into in this movie, because as you said, it's two and a half hours long. There's a lot of content and a lot of story to talk about. But for me, my overarching impression of it, and maybe it's fitting that you compared me to Ken Miles, because I am kind of the Ken Miles of this podcast, cranky and cantankerous. And I feel that way talking about this movie a little bit, because I might be ripping it more than it deserves. But I kind of wanted this movie to either be a four-hour, four-part miniseries where they really spend some time digging into the history of Shelby and Miles individually and their relationship because we don't really get a full sense of why these guys are so tight, right? We only get sort of a barest hint at it early on where they're racing together. I wanted to know more about Enzo Ferrari personally and Henry Ford II personally. I want to know more about why they had this rivalry. Why is this called Ford versus Ferrari? It's one of those things where it's touched on, right? Where Ferrari kind of seems insulted by Ford's offer to buy his company and uses that offer to sort of play against Fiat and all that kind of stuff. But then later on in the movie, the hatred that Ford expresses for Ferrari and it's implied to be true in the reverse just doesn't seem justified by what we're given earlier in the movie. I wanted more of the understanding of those guys, which is why I was like, okay, well, give me a four-part miniseries where we get the backstories. Because incidentally, while I don't know anything about this race or this story in particular, I know a little bit about Carol Shelby because I'm a big fan of the Shelby GT Cobra and Gone in 60 Seconds and all that kind of fun stuff. He had an interesting life prior to this, and it would have been cool to see a little bit of that in a miniseries format. Or, if it's not going to be this miniseries kind of thing, cut it down. Get rid of a lot of the... Ken Miles waxing poetic about feeling the road and the car because we have like half a dozen lengthy scenes of him driving around <laughs> and just talking to himself. Get rid of a lot of the Peter stuff. I did not care about his son at all because frankly, he's not doing this for his kid. He's doing this for himself. Carol Shelby says that flat out. We're doing this because we have to do it or we're going to go crazy. There's a bunch of other bits and pieces in there that really didn't serve a lot of story purpose and just bloated the movie out, especially the ending. Why didn't this movie end with Ken Miles and Carol Shelby walking off together after the end of the race talking about what they were going to do with the car? Why'd they have to show me him dying and then a scene where Shelby's expressing remorse to the kid that, again, I didn't care about? It felt like the Lord of the Rings movie. Oh, okay, this movie's over now. Well, that was a pretty good end. Nope, it's still going. Okay, well, now the movie's going to end. Nope, it's still going. <laughs> This tried to sort of thread the needle of both. It's neither like a fast-paced, sports-driven driving movie, nor is it a real in-depth investigation about the personalities and relationships of the people that it's documenting. I think it just slightly whiffed for me. All right. So first of all, the Lord of the Rings thing, I will defend as I always do. It needed those endings because there's a lot of characters to wrap up. But you could have ended with Frodo and the other guys in the bedroom, I guess. It would have been incomplete. We could have used our imaginations. As far as this movie goes... I like the kid relationship more than you did. And at the end, you've got Matt Damon going to him, I guess specifically to see him, not even so much to see the mother. Well, Miles' wife, but the kid's mother. But it's not like Shelby and Peter were close the whole movie. It's more at the end, and he cries a little bit, gives the kid the wrench that earlier Ken had thrown at him. Yeah. But okay, the miniseries thing. We talked about that in 42. Very solid movie. Good performances. We definitely enjoyed it. We definitely recommended it. And we got to cover it on Jackie Robinson Day, which was very nice and very appropriate. But we said in that one that it could have been a long miniseries and probably should have been. Jackie Robinson's life, not just because he was a black player and a talented player going through all he did, but he also became a civil rights pioneer 
and a civil rights fighter, if you will, in the decades that followed his career, which they didn't really touch on. We don't really need to know that Ken died in a car wreck that his son saw. I hope that's not real. In the movie, the kid is there when that happens. And Ken had brake failure earlier that could have killed him and didn't. Mm -hmm. But we don't really need to see that. You could have just put a graphic on the screen or not even addressed it and let people look it up if they really wanted to know because Ken went in the Hall of Fame. I think they put that graphic on the screen later on. So that's good enough. We don't need to see some big ceremony when he's not there, obviously. Maybe his son accepted it or was there to speak. I don't know. And them walking off, like you say, the Shelby-Miles relationship, which isn't really fully developed, as you said, would be a fine way to end it with a few graphics. And there you go, because Ford versus Ferrari has happened. Ford won. They won four straight years, 66, 67, 68, and 69 with the GT40 Mm -hmm. that won this race so easily. I do wonder, though, if Ford just outspent everybody, like the Yankees are accused of doing the last 25 or so years. Because why did they beat this better car? But they did develop it. They had very talented guys. This is a movie that also does the whole American ingenuity. We can beat anybody, even the more talented Italians with their car. And that leads me to my nutshell. So Ford versus Ferrari in a nutshell. An American teams up with a Brit to beat Italians in a French race. (laughs) Very international. (laughs) Or he's in a fucking zone, man. He's in a fucking zone, man. Ken is the Woody Harrelson of this movie. He's in a fucking zone. White Man Can't Jump. I saw that again recently, too. Oh, I wish I watched White Man Can't Jump. Now that is an enjoyable movie. It's on Disney+. Plus. I think you did nail it exactly. And when I reference the Lord of the Rings stuff, by the way, I'm a huge Tolkien and Lord of the Rings fan, so I don't mind it. It's just the one that's cited for not ending where people expect it to. You're absolutely right. I think Ford did just outspend everybody later that decade, whatever racing body overseas races like Le Mans. I think they put rules into place to make more uniform the style of car that's raced so that you can't just have one team spend to the nth degree to win. That Mm -hmm. edge was lost down the line. But there were so many elements to this that I felt like were just barely touched on or glossed over and tantalizingly hinted at. And one of them was Henry Ford II. The deuce. The deuce. I love the fact that his lackeys, I'll call him the deuce, I wanted more John Bernthal, too. I like him as Lee Iacocca. He gets, like, a bunch of speaking opportunities early in the movie, like when he's pitching the idea of racing, and then nothing. Then Josh Lucas basically takes over his character later on. Yeah. They're different people, of course, but he's playing BB, Lucas is, and we covered Lucas a few months ago in Glory Road, where I thought he was rock solid, and he's fine in this. He's more the antagonist like he was in Hulk. But John Bernthal, who can lay it on too much like he did in Walking Dead, I thought he was very solid, if not really good, actually, as Lee Iacocca. I did, too. But he does basically disappear in the second half. And the real guy, by the way, we all know Lee Iacocca ran Chrysler very successfully. But Ford made huge profits in the 70s. And then I think his power played out was what I was reading, maybe by BB, maybe by somebody else. So it's appropriate he's played well and competently by Bernthal because it sounds like the real guy really was. And everywhere he went, things succeeded. It seems like he touches gold everywhere he goes or makes gold everywhere he goes. He's the King Midas of the car world. But yeah, I wanted to know more about Henry Ford, right? Or as you say, the deuce, Henry Ford II. And I already said, I want to know more about Enzo Ferrari. We're shown the factory. We're given a tour of how carefully everything's made all by hand and stuff like that. Is that better than automation? Because you can have more variability if somebody's doing stuff by hand. I don't know. He's pretty much bankrupted himself because of his love of racing. But there's so much more to the story of Enzo Ferrari and how Ferrari came to be as a company. And I just wanted more backstory there. 
We know that Ferrari is a proud guy and he's proud of his racing team. But why, why, why does Ford care enough about this race? Because he's dubious of it at the beginning, right? He says, we're already competing in NASCAR. We don't need to compete in this. And Iacocca effectively convinces him to give it a shot. But what's the underlying impetus for him to spend all of this money? Because he is clearly spending a ton of money to develop not just this car, but they had something like 13 cars and teams in this race. That's not really fully fleshed out, but they had a ton of cars. And they finished one, two, three in the end. Of course, that's a scene at the end where they're ordered to. Well, I guess it's Ken who's ordered to. And then he loses on technicality because the other guy started a little bit further back. So Ken technically finished second. But yeah, they had one, two, and three. And if you're saying they had 10 more guys either didn't finish the race or were way back, man, that is really stacking the deck. That is Yankee spending then. I think it was pretty common from what I saw online that teams would have a number of cars in the race. But for somebody like Henry Ford II to go from not racing in this style of race to suddenly funding the development and racing of 13 cars and teams, there's something driving that. And it's not just that he tried to buy Ferrari and was rebuffed, there had to have been something underlying that. Whether it's insecurity because his father was such an icon and he was trying to live up to that and sort of build oh, hold on. his own... Point of order, excuse me. I just looked this up before we started recording. I assumed Henry Ford, as in the Henry Ford, is his dad. It's his granddad, his grandfather. Okay. Ed Sul Ford, useless trivia, I could have saved this for one of our trivia games, is the guy in the middle. So the deuce... His dad is Edsel Ford, and then Henry Ford, the famous one, the more famous one, the most famous one, is the father of Edsel. Okay. That makes sense, actually, given the timing of it. I was a little bit confused, 1960s versus when Ford was bringing his company to the limelight in, like, the early 20th century. But yeah, the point still stands regardless. Is he operating in the shadow of this giant that he shares a name with, and is he trying to establish his own legacy? It left me wanting more, and it left me wanting more to understand the trials and tribulations and successes of Ford and other American teams in this race. Ford, obviously, as a company, had a great deal of success in Le Mans very quickly. But what they don't tell us is that apparently Chrysler had been racing in this race for like 40 years and never won it. Ford shows up as the other American kid on the block and then blows them out of the water. I felt like that would have been a fun little tidbit to throw in there too, because they make a big deal about them being the only American team to win this race, right? Or the only American built car. And then Iacocca went to Chrysler years later too, although that was quite a few years later, but they didn't know that of course then, how could they in reality? But that is a tie-in. The thing that killed me more than anything else watching this movie was the first Le Mans race that we don't actually see. We only experience through Ken listening on the radio while he's in the shop, right? Because he's ousted as the driver. He's left behind, I guess that's 65, the 1965 Le Mans. I think so, yeah. Because 66 is the race that we see at the end of the movie. Well, about half the movie is that race, actually. And we're told and shown, granted we're shown, but also told repeatedly how good Ken Miles is, how intuitive a driver he is, how in tune with his car he is. I should be. I've been driving the Batmobile a long time, and that thing is basically a big bus. I did think it was an interesting choice that they put a flame-throwing jet engine on the back of the car, but when you see Christian Bale in it, it makes sense. No wonder he won. (laughs) We know they flamed out in 65. The car flamed out, the driver failed, whatever. I think they say everything broke except the paint job or something, on the, or everything broke except the brakes, ironically enough, on that first car. But show me that race. It doesn't have to be like the final race where we get half an hour of action, but give me five minutes of showing me the driver struggling or the car failing, and so that 
when we see the development sequences later and when we see Ken Miles ultimately succeed in basically the same car, we get a better sense of how much better he is doing what he does versus these other guys that are also presumably very good, right? It just gives us that point of comparison that I kind of wanted when we get the climactic race scenes. I think we get that. The fact that we see them do lo-fi things like driving the car with taped on ribbons or something like that so they can see where the airflow is specifically. That was Of course, cool. Ken can't see that. They can see it through binoculars. And then let's not forget the importance of the character Ray McKinnon plays. So the guy from Apollo 13 is one of the many guys in the control room in that movie. And the more probably recognizable role he did was in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's the fiancé of Holly Hunter that has that <laughs> silly fight with George Clooney and the Woolsworth. But the actor has a solid role, and I think the actual person he's playing was just as vital as everybody else in this, because Matt Damon's playing a racing, maybe not genius, but close to a genius in Shelby. Obviously, Ken Miles is a savant about driving and knowing about cars and everything, but you can't discount the whole team. And McKinnon's character is probably the unsung hero of all of them. I agree with that. And I did enjoy his character. Although I have to admit the one scene that his character had that just clanked for me, and I did not understand it at the time... And then at the end of the movie, I did understand it, but I still didn't like it. The whole sequence where Ken Miles is in a crash about 45 minutes into the movie or an hour into the movie while testing the car. And he gets out and he's fine. But then Peter goes to speak with Ray McKinnon's character and talk about, have you ever been on fire? And have you ever seen anybody die in the crash? And there's that whole chat that they have for about three, four or five minutes where he says, yeah, basically, I've never been on fire. I've seen people die. They effectively suffocate to death sometimes so they don't get out. That's a weird and dark sequence to just plop into this movie for reasons I don't understand. And then we see Ken Miles die in exactly that way at the end of the movie, as you say, witnessed by his son. So they're closing that particular thread by foreshadowing it with that earlier conversation, I suppose. I could have done without the earlier conversation and could have done without seeing him die, quite frankly, at the end of the movie. And it would have just been a shorter and tighter movie, in my opinion. But with that scene aside, I did really love everything he brought to the table, including, like you said, the kind of fun, lo-fi, low-tech solutions to things. We see him scribbling out designs for the car, effectively with pencil and on a napkin, drawing out the new replaceable brake assemblies and things like that. It was really neat. Well, if you like the performance that Christian Bale put up, he was not nominated for an Oscar, but a lot of people thought he would be. Damon probably has as much, I would say, maybe even more screen time. But we just say his name now, the director, James Mangold, one of those unsung directors the last, say, 20 years, who's done so many good films. He did some in the 90s as well, but since the turn of the century, he's done some excellent stuff like Walk the Line, Logan, which was my favorite movie of 2017, and I think the best X-Men movie, even though so little of it, is about the X-Men. But what a great performance by Hugh Jackman. Could have been nominated for an Oscar. And he's in the middle of filming the fifth Indiana Jones movie right now. So Spielberg is not directing it. It is James Mangold. And if it's not going to be Spielberg, Mangold's an unusual choice. But he did so well with Logan and with Walk the Line and with so many other films. Copland, a lot of people love that movie. And this is beloved by a lot of people, even if it isn't beloved by us, that maybe he's a pretty good choice for it. And anytime you like the performances, you got to give credit to the director. Tracy Letts, who I think is a better actor than a writer, even though he's a writer as well and a playwright. He's fun in this movie as the deuce, including the scene where he breaks down and cries after the fast race by <laughs> Shelby, which convinces that was great. Ford, it's basically a bet. If Miles wins Daytona, he gets to race at Le Mans. But if Miles doesn't win it, I guess even finishing second, this would be that Shelby has to lose his company, his little, whatever, Shelby American, I think it's called, right. to the deuce, who doesn't need that anyway. And you talked about his motivations, whether it's true or not, whether it's enough for you or not, the movie's saying 
the slight by Ferrari and going with Fiat instead of Ford with the sale made the dude so angry that he was determined to beat them. That's what the movie's saying. Simple as that, I think. When you're as hyper rich as Henry Ford II would have been in this era, maybe that's enough. It might be the equivalent of somebody slamming Elon Musk and calling his Tesla Roadsters junk, and maybe he just decides to dump $100 million into developing another supercar just to prove them wrong. Maybe that's enough. I just kind of felt like I wanted to understand the personality of the character just a little bit better. Is he insecure about his name relative to his grandfather? And you talked about the sale to Fiat as being the primary motivation. That is another one of those interesting little behind the scenes connective threads, right? Is Fiat buys Ferrari, although they allow Ferrari total autonomy over the racing arm of the company. Enzo, that mm. is. Some decades later, Chrysler would then buy Fiat. So Iacocca eventually won. It just took some time for him to win. It took some time. The actor that did play Henry Ford II did have some very fun scenes and maybe some of the most fun scenes in my mind. The scene where BB gets locked in the office. Shelby locks BB in his office, runs to Henry Ford, who's visiting him at his shop while they're developing the supercar for Le Mans. And this is all in service of trying to convince him to leave Ken Miles as the driver because apparently BB just has a hate on for Miles. Yeah. Calls him a beatnik or something. He never really struck me as much of a beatnik in this movie. He doesn't like him because he's a loose cannon, probably. He isn't a team player. There's an arc there, too, because at the end, Ken becomes a team player and gets screwed out of winning. And I'm sure if he talked to the guy who finished first instead by a technicality, he wouldn't have been very impressed with that. Yeah, the team won, and that's what really matters the most. But Ken also had to really slow down to let them catch up. He was setting lap records over and over again in this race. After that bad start, when the doors messed up. That was fun, they too. They had to pound the door to place with a mallet. So he had to gain time on everybody including his own teammates, and then he was so far ahead of them. And of course, as you see in this movie, it isn't one person driving for 24 hours, which would be nuts. Driving for even five hours, I think it's crazy, because you lose focus for a minute, and you not only could kill yourself, you could kill other people, because you're wiped out and tired. But they do trade off after every couple hours. But I'm guessing the main driver drives... I didn't read this, but I'm guessing it's probably something like 16 out of the 24 hours, if not more, probably more like 18, 20 hours. Anyway, the point is I'm speculating. It did look like that. But it's a team thing. It's already a team effort. And of course, you've got a guy in the pit, Matt Damon. We've seen a lot of guys play this kind of character. We love Robert Duvall in Days of Thunder. Not a great racing movie, a fun racing movie. But as we said, Duvall did some of his best work ever in that film. He is excellent in that. And Damon's quite solid in this. We've covered him now three times this year already, and it's only July. Legend of Bagger Vance was only a little while ago, and Invictus was earlier this year than that. So racing golf and rugby and we did rounders a cards movie way back when so he's got all these specialty sports movies and we've done them four times and it's our second christian bale movie because of course we did the fighter i believe it was last year and that's a boxing movie this is the rare time he seems to ever play a guy or have ever played a guy with an english accent he almost always plays someone with a different kind of accent especially american mm -hmm. but it's not rare that he lost weight for a role because i think it was after maybe it was before where he played Dick Cheney and put on a ton of weight like he's done in some other movies, playing Batman that's all muscle right after he does The Machinist. This guy's going to kill himself one of these days with these kinds of weight gains and weight losses and things. And I also was reading that Damon did this movie primarily to work with Christian Bale. And he is on screen with them a lot. They do have a lot of scenes together, or a lot of scenes where they're at least working together because, of course, Bale's driving the car and Damon's in his ear. They're not actually on screen at the same time all that much, I guess, come to think of it. Listen, if I had a chance to work with Christian Bale and I was an actor, I'd take it too. Especially when you're playing a personage as iconic as Carol Shelby is to the American car industry. You bet your ass you do it. 
I did say prior to recording this that I'm looking forward to doing this movie solely so I can see how often you bust out the Christian Bale Batman impression. I'm not trying to overdo it. I think I've done four times so far. I like the peppering in. That's good. Just to wrap up the thought around Henry Ford II and that sequence where Shelby takes him in the car to convince him to leave 10 miles as driver. One of the most understated lines, I think, in this movie, but something that actually made me laugh out loud. I think it was Ray McKinnon again. Josh Lucas's character eventually does bust out of the office and he's sort of like watching in rage while this is happening on the track. As Shelby pins Henry Ford II to his seat using the G-forces. Oh, and incidentally, did you also enjoy the fact that it took like four people to get Henry Ford II into the car? He's like, okay, you take my left arm, you take my right arm, all right, lower me in. But at some point, I think Ray McKinnon's watching it, and he turns to the side and says, this is about the point where the uninitiated soil themselves or something, and then it cuts to the car, and you see Henry Ford II just squealing and screaming in terror. And then, yeah, you're right, he breaks down tears at the end. But you mentioned Days of Thunder, which is a comparison that I drew as well, because you're right, that's not necessarily a great racing movie, and I think this movie does a much better job of portraying the racing itself. In fact, I thought the last portrayal of Le Mans 66... Though lengthy, I thought was great. I really, really enjoyed the portrayal of the race itself. But it's an interesting comparison because I wouldn't necessarily describe my experience watching Ford v. Ferrari as fun. You cited numbers earlier. A lot of people do find this movie a lot of fun. I think it was a little bit plotting. Whatever, that's fine. But Tom Cruise was apparently the initial casting choice for this movie too. And Brad Pitt would have worked together after... Interview of the Vampire, what's that, 25 years later? It was going to be called Go Like Hell, which Damon writes on a board when Bale drives past him, just says Go Like Hell. That would have been the title of that version. And I think that was what the working title of this was as well. But yeah, Cruz, I guess, would have played Damon's part, I'm guessing. Or do you think he would have been the racer? Oh, that, what am I talking about? He had to have played the racer. I was wondering that too. And I think you're right. I think modern day Brad Pitt anyway, I think, has begun to excel as the somewhat snarky coach style person right like the grizzled experienced type of character so i think it would be cruise but then would we be treated to a tom cruise british accent the whole movie <laughs> i don't know if i've ever heard him try a british accent have you he did irish in far and away and i don't think people love the accent he does an accent i think in interview of the vampire because he's a european as i recall maybe he is he? anyway he hasn't done a lot of accents in his life but here and there i guess he has Funny thing, too, is that the writers of this movie, one of them wrote, or at least co-wrote, Edge of Tomorrow, or Live, Die, Repeat, whatever you want to call it. But that's, of course, one of the more excellent Tom Cruise movies of the recent era. Mission Impossible movies are fun, but he does so many of them that they blend together a little bit. Edge of Tomorrow was an excellent idea, Groundhog Day concept. John Henry Butterworth wrote that, or maybe co-wrote it. And Jez Butterworth has written a lot of big movies, many with John Henry. A lot of biopics for Jez, also Spectre. And then Jason Keller is a writing credit on this, too. A lot of producers, including Mangold himself. So he's been nominated twice for an Oscar, once for producing this, and once for writing Logan, but never as a director, even though he's directed some really good films. And Michael Mann also had a producing credit on this film. But what about scoring? Because there's really only one woman in the whole film. It's Ken's wife. I don't know how you say her name. I guess it's Katrina, but it looks like it's Katriona Balf. So she's the supportive wife. She does a pretty good job with the stock role we've seen a thousand times. I guess she's best known from Outlander on TV. I've never seen Outlander. A lot of people have. But it's not a sexual movie at all. Unless you ever wanted to get it on with a car, then it's just not a sexy film. I assume you agree? I think that's safe to say. But you are right. There's some sexy cars in this movie. I did enjoy the sequences where we really get a sense of whether it's Shelby or Miles. I think they both have their moments. 
but we get a sense of how much they actually just care about the cars. Ken Miles, when we're first introduced to him, is running an auto body shop. We later find out it gets padlocked by the IRS because he's been blowing all his money on amateur racing or something. But we see him fight with one of his clients because he's tuned up this guy's hot roddy style car so tightly that the guy can't figure out how to drive it. He's trying to tell him, like, you got to drive it like a sports car, not like an Edsel. It's a sports car. And he gives them instructions about how to shift. And then later on, we see Carol Shelby in his shop a number of times, selling cars, building cars, whatever, or even just driving around town in his super sleek, sexy, I don't even know what the car is. Those sequences watching Shelby drive around town just led me to believe this guy is an asshole on the road. He's a maniac. We see him cut people off and just gun it through residential areas. Oh, you are a danger, sir. Well, he finds out his career's over because of his heart problems. So I can understand to a degree why he's so upset. But he could have died the way he drove out of that clinic, that hospital. And it could have killed somebody else. But obviously, him being a racer, he feels like, well, I know what I'm doing. Well, that's the whole thing about defensive driving is that it's not about you being a good driver. It's about other people being a good driver. But he wasn't thinking clearly, so I guess we have to forgive him a little bit. But that's the only reason he retired in the first place is because the doctors made him. That's true. He would have been the driver if he could have been. And they probably would have had no problem at all with him being their front man compared to Ken Miles if he was healthy enough to drive in the 66 and so on races. 100%. And I'm sure he would have loved that. That's also another thing that's not really fully explored, but maybe it doesn't need to be. We've seen that kind of thing before. If I want to be this guy and I can't anymore, so I'll live through you and we'll be friends. But there's still a part of me that has a little bit of an issue with that and is a little bit jealous of you. But that's not explored at all. Maybe that's not true to the real Shelby. But this movie isn't a documentary, so they can make that be a subplot. Although it doesn't need more time. It's already two and a half hours long. I think you're right. I think that would have been an interesting subplot. But I also think if it was a miniseries, again, maybe they could have put something like that in and made it part of the larger exploration around the Ken Miles, Carol Shelby relationship. These guys are so clearly close. And that's demonstrated so well just in the sequence where Shelby goes to apologize to Miles after the first Le Mans race. I want you back. I've been given full autonomy. And I know they're going to try to screw me over on that, but we'll figure that out when we get there. And the way that resolves itself is such a stereotypical guy relationship way. Ken Miles says, well, beg me. Apologize and beg me. And then proceeds to punch Carol Shelby in the face. And it turns into a brawl where they're like hitting each other with the wonder bread and stuff that <laughs> Ken was bringing home from the supermarket. That's a good sequence because that's exactly the kind of stuff that if you're friends with somebody for decades and you have a disagreement, you're a guy, right? And you don't want to express real feelings. This is how you resolve things. You have like a silly fight on the grass and then you make up and you have a coke and that was a fun <laughs> scene but for that to work they have to already be close friends which they clearly are but we don't really know why shelby at one point defends ken miles to bb when bb calls miles a beatnik he says well this guy landed on normandy beach he drove a damaged tank all the way to berlin or something like that well how do you know that how do you know this history of ken miles from 20 odd years before in world war ii it's a perfectly reasonable thing for Shelby to know about his friend, but give me more. Did you serve with him in the Allied forces, Shelby? Or is this just something that over the years you've gotten to know each other, you've traded stories, literal war stories? I don't know. The breadcrumbs were good. The breadcrumbs were there. I just wanted more. Well, they found room and time to have Shelby fly a plane. That was fun. <laughs> which I guess he may have done in the war as well. It's a strange touch. He's not the greatest pilot in the world, but he gets them down safely. But he's a reckless guy, so... Doesn't he say, let me take a shot at landing it? And the pilot's like, oh, Carol, ha, ha, ha. And he goes, no, no, I'm serious. <laughs> Get out. I'm landing this thing. 
On getting back to the brawl you just talked about, that is one of the red letter scenes in this movie. I think it was in the marketing, so the ads, the trailers and everything. Because you don't see scenes like that all that often, especially between two iconic actors like Bale and Damon. One of the better touches is when Molly, so that's Balf, the wife, comes out and has a lawn chair and makes that kind of gesture with it. It snaps into place so she can sit in it because she just wants to sit and watch. Maybe there's a part of her that sort of hates Shelby right then, certainly doesn't like him much at all. Well, then she waves at him at the end when he comes... Because she probably would think, you got my husband killed, but Kem is going to drive somewhere, somehow. And if he was ever going to die racing, it wouldn't be because of Carol Shelby or anybody else. He wanted to do it, and he was going to keep doing it. But still, there's an element of her that takes glee in seeing them both, I think, hit each other. Although they don't really hurt each other at all, because that scene is not about that. Rightly so, too. That's how a lot of wives, girlfriends, significant others would view this happening right we got oh you guys are just like moronic boys aren't you all right get it out of your systems and just sit back and watch these are two guys christian bale and matt damon that we've seen have legit fight scenes in a variety of movies whether it's the batman movies or the Bourne movies they could pull off a fight sequence but they do a great job because these guys at this point i guess are meant to be about our age right mid 40s ish if we were to fight each other in the park it wouldn't be pretty (laughs) it would be flailing at each other, grabbing at legs, bouncing around, falling over, hitting each other with whatever was at hand. And that's what this scene does so well. Two middle-aged guys trying to fight, not being particularly good at it, (laughs) and then just collapsing tired on the lawn. Well, they were in the war. They must know something about fighting, but not a whole lot, I guess. And they're also not truly into it. They don't really have the heart to truly hit each other, I guess. It's, I'm mad at you, but I can't really hurt you. And if you and I ever fought, you'd definitely win because you're bigger and stronger than me by a mile. But... If a Ric Flair chop-blocked your knee, you're done. They're all the same size laying down, Gorilla. Your encyclopedic knowledge of wrestling finishers would terrify me. <laughs> I'd want to be sharpshootered in the middle of Dieppe Park after a stupid fight. <laughs> that would just be hard for me to live down. Well, this movie is about aggression in other ways, too, because Ken wipes out a fellow Ford driver at Daytona and pushes it to 7,000 RPM, wins that race. That's why he gets into Le Mans. And then we see some rubbing, as we learn as the expression, in Days of Thunder in the big Le Mans race. Not a lot of it. It's not a focus like it is in Days of Thunder. That seems absurd. I've never really watched racing. I always meant to ask my dad, because he does watch it. I should say, do they actually hit each other that much, like they show in Days of Thunder, or is that just completely blown out of proportion? Because you see a little bit of it in this, and that makes a lot more sense. There would just be a little bit of it. And then another aggressive thing, in a way, is the way that Shelby fucks with the Italians. He steals the (laughs) stopwatches from them, then they can't find them when they want them, and then he just drops bolts on the ground as if to imply... Oh, wait, we didn't put that on the car, did we? <laughs> that was Which fun. is a bit of a dirty trick, but there's not a lot of comedy in this movie. That's a comedic moment. Certainly, Tracy Letts playing the deuce can be funny here and there. And there's some humor, I guess, with Bale, but Bale's not really a funny actor generally. He's not really funny in this, I wouldn't say generally. But those scenes are enjoyable during this long race. And, of course, we're covering this movie because it is a sports film, our fourth car racing movie. We don't have a lot of interest in this sport. We don't know much about it, but it seems as accurate and as good as any of the rest of the many racing movies that have ever been made, including a movie called Le Mans with Steve McQueen in 1971. And this movie is very well made, whether you liked it or not. You can't deny it. It's got authenticity, looks pretty good. Mangold, as I said before, is a terrific director. And it is the best of the four racing movies we've covered. So that's Talladega Nights, Days of Thunder, and The Fast and the Furious. I would probably actually watch Days of Thunder the most because I've seen it the most. And I'm guessing you'd say Talladega Nights. Yeah. But I'm also guessing that my second viewing will probably be my last for this movie. And I'm guessing your first will be your last. I'm not going to rush out in the next six months to watch it again for sure. But this is definitely a movie I could see myself revisiting in the future. 
it might be one where I just maybe fast forward through the first hour or so and just pick it up where they start prepping for Le Mans 66. I really like Christian Bale and I really like Matt Damon and they both do good jobs in this movie and I could rewatch them playing. You bet your ass we do. <laughs> there it is. Number five. <laughs> I mean, this is Le Mans 66, so I feel like you got to have a sixth. I'm not going to tell you when to do it. I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but there has to be a sixth Batman drop somewhere. You hit the nail on the head exactly talking about that lengthy final race sequence in this movie and it is very well made. It does portray the dangers of the sport, this particular race anyway. We see so many crashes, so many just blink of an eye kind of sequences where something goes wrong or cars are pushed too hard and it's all over for you. I don't know if it was CGI generated. I don't know if it was practical. They actually had the cars on the track or some combination thereof. But just little... Probably a combination. Probably a combination. And this is something I have to give credit to the movie. They give us a sequence of breadcrumbs leading up to the race, talking about the elements of what could go wrong, whether it's the fatigue element that you talked about earlier and just human error, whether it's a failure of the car in some way, whether it's crashing with somebody else because of their failure. In particular, things like brakes and pushing the engine too hard until the gearbox effectively explodes. And we see that in action in the race. So the fact that they've laid that out leading up to it during the development of the car and then pay it off, I thought was great visually because it's not always, oh my God, my brakes are about to fail. It can be as simple as the fact that we see a sequence of 10 miles pushing the car to the limit, approaching a pretty hairpinny type of turn and then downshifting hard, braking hard. And you see the brake pads just glowing orange from the heat as he's slowing mm -hmm. down around the corner. Those kinds of sequences I thought were just great little touches, visual touches, and sometimes understated touches that paid off well at the end of the movie. Well, credit to Mangold then directing all these technical people to make this movie seem pretty seamless, because you're right, it's probably a combination of CGI and then practical driving. But how about this? This movie's set, about half of it at least, in France. And according to what I see online, they didn't do any filming in France. They shot right. in Georgia and California, and that looks like the only locations. They really ginned up that they're in France. Maybe the IMDb isn't thorough, but that's what it said online. So that's even more impressive that they can fake that they're in France for so much of the screen time of this film. Also, another touch that I never saw before, and haven't seen that many racing movies, I guess, but the men have to race into their car on foot. Yeah. They're, what, maybe 20 feet away the other side of the track? What if you trip and fall and you can't even get the race going? Oh, my God, my ankle. I can't drive now. It's a weird touch. I assume that's just Le Mans. I've never seen that at Daytona or anything. And there are a lot of crashes right off the bat, too. That's what struck me about that. We hear the kid, Peter, when he's talking to his dad earlier in the movie about Le Mans and they're going over how it's going to play out turn by turn, essentially. And the kid corrects his father to say, you don't start from the pole position or anything. You have to run to your car. And he's like, that's right. You have to do that at Le Mans. I'm like, oh, that's a weird quirk. You see the cars lined up along the side of the track. You can just sort of visualize as everyone runs to their car, pull a 90 degree turn to the left to get out onto the track. You just know it's going to be like a demolition derby off the hop, right? And that's exactly what we see here. And I thought <laughs> I thought it was a really fun sequence getting into the car with Ken Miles during that. And he's cursing to himself saying, oh my God, what the hell? As he's trying to navigate his way out of the immense pileup of crashes off the starting line. And his door won't close. 
Honestly, when that happened, I thought it would be a thing where he tries to close it three times and eventually it does close, but he pulls off an entire slow, albeit, but an entire lap with the door flapping open and closed as he's trying to shut it. I did enjoy the way they solved that problem because it's kind of one of these themes through the whole movie. Okay, there's a problem with the car. Get the sledgehammer. Violence solves everything. Or I guess I could do a Damon accent. Violence solves everything. What do they call it? Brute force and ignorance is the solution to all of their engineering <laughs> problems. I think we're introduced to that in the very first race that we see Ken Miles and Shelby racing in. I don't even know where they are at that point, whether it's California or, or Texas or what have you. But he's hammering the trunk. He's hammering the trunk, and then he breaks the windshield yeah. and brute force and ignorance. It works. Well, I give the movie seven and a half out of ten, even though I didn't get sucked into it and didn't love it that much. And you watched it in stages, which probably didn't help. What's your score for it? I think more like a six and a half because of the pacing stuff. Yeah, we can't say it's a bad movie. Just not a movie that we particularly loved, even though maybe we, well, we're not racing fans, but we're certainly of the age for it. And if you look at those numbers online, I'm guessing that's a lot of middle-aged men that just love this movie. You kind of touched on this when you're talking about the scoring factor of this movie. It's a very chaste movie. It's a very safe movie. There's very little swearing. There's no real violence to speak of. Even where we see the crashes and stuff like that, there's no blood, guts, gore. It's as safe a family movie as you can find, I think, within this kind of genre. Maybe that's the problem then. Depending on what you're looking for out of the movie, I think it can be a problem or it can be just like a great thing. Because if I'm somebody that has a family and I want to watch a movie and I don't have to worry about my kids being exposed to something I don't want them to be exposed to, this is a great option. And you can still get a lot of good performances and good sequences out of it. The extent to which it adds up to a great whole is obviously going to be dependent on your perspective. Yeah, I think that plays into its favor anyway, as far as the mass appeal of the movie. Although I was still shocked by the numbers you talked about. 98% or whatever, that blew me away. From the audiences, even stronger than the critics. They would probably say the movie is finer than frog fur. I guess the only other thing I really did enjoy about this movie is watching Christian Bale. I think it happens three times, twice with his son and once at the end of the Le Mans race, just driving around singing his happy song. I know I am, I know I am, H-A-P-P-Y or whatever it is. <sighs> kind of cute. And you know why that he normally doesn't do that kind of thing, which is cute and nice? It's because he's too intense. <laughs> and everything he does. And if I can steal from how it should have ended... Because he's Batman. It would have been a fun twist if it turned out that Ken Miles was actually Batman. <laughs> it wasn't Bruce Wayne all this time. It was Ken Miles. I also would enjoy seeing Patrick Bateman driving around New York City in the 80s singing the happy song. I think that would have been a fun touch, too. Cut in these sequences into other Christian Bale movies. Bale's done plenty of good works, and both of my podcasts have covered a lot of them. And he's rock solid at least. Well, he's better than rock solid in this movie. Good performances. Well made. So if you liked it, hopefully we didn't shit on a movie that you're a big fan of. In two weeks, it will be July 22nd, which is one day before the opening of the 2020-2021 Summer Olympics. So let's lace up our brand new Nikes and run in the 1972 Munich Games as we discuss the life of Steve Prefontaine in Without Limits, which Tom Cruise produced and Robert Town wrote and I think directed as well. And you haven't seen that either, right? I have not, no. I won't give anything away. I'll let you enjoy it. All right, so... We're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find us wherever you get podcasts. Download them all. Subscribe to us. We've done so many. It's 81 now, and 82 will be without limits. For God's sake, Carol Shelby, take her easy. If you keep driving like that, somebody's going to get killed. Well, somebody else is going to get killed. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Ken Miles, no. Ending on a down note. That's not fair.
If I had the Batmobile, I would have survived that crash.